0: This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Kudnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Talia Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart, practitioner and writer in the Fourth Way Tradition. Trevor has experience in both Zen Buddhist monastic and Gurdjieff work by a farm and try to fix it up traditions a long-time Elzebub's Tales practitioner, he leads private online study groups. He presents regularly at the annual International All-in-Everything Conference, has written for Parabola Magazine, and is a returning guest on the Mystical Positivist podcast. In daily life, he runs a design and build firm in Portland, Oregon. In our conversation today, we discuss two of Trevor's recent papers for the All-in-Everything Conference, A Universal Language, Gurdjieff's Exact Language, new tools for insight into Beelzebub's tales, and unity and multiplicity, observation, remembering, and objective consciousness in Beelzebub's tales. We cover how Gurdjieff's writings demonstrate and reflect the operations of our minds while at the same time training us to stand beyond this operation, how dual and non-dual perspectives show up in the tales, and points of tangency between Buddhist and fourth-way understandings of awakening. Trevor Stewart, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thanks uh, for agreeing to be on with us. and in, in fact, um, we're, we will largely be uh, confining our discussion to discussing a couple of papers that, you, that you've written, linked papers. Um, but before that, um, I want to invite you to update um, listeners' who would have last heard you on the show like a year and a half ago, perhaps, or maybe two years. I'm not exactly sure. Anything else, anything you want to let us know about what's been going on in your small W capital W work life, et cetera. But then um, also I want to invite you to sort of set the context for um, how it is that you came to write these two, I, I'd call them quite ambitious papers, and um, and then we can proceed from there to the topic matter.
2: Okay. Well, let's see. I think the last time we talked would have been pre-COVID. Well, Is that's that right. So, yeah, yes. That's for sure. So, you know, like everybody, I've been grappling with COVID, and you know, I run a small construction business. So, fortunately, we haven't been impacted really much at all we're considered frontline workers we get to keep going out and working on the job um we have plenty of work and in fact way too much work so um my business has just kept developing you know and um if i if i wasn't careful it would expand quite a lot too so i've been really fortunate um you know i live in portland and there's a lot of restaurants in portland and kind of a big service industry So you really see the effects of COVID in Portland, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but there's this housing crisis as well. I'm sure that's the same down where you're at. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. You're a little bit more rurally located now.
0: Yeah. We're, we're North of San Francisco, but uh, But this this whole area, only 50
1: miles North. So it's
2: the greater Bay area. Yeah. So we're trying to slowly move in the direction of, of we're focusing on ADUs, which is a particular housing type, which basically is part of the infill project in Portland. Mm. So we're part of sort of building these small accessory dwelling units on properties. And that's Uh. something that hopefully will, will help with the housing crisis crisis. Yeah. So work has been going, I've got a, I've had a a kid since then. He's 16 months old. Um, We we've just moved houses in the middle of a really crazy housing market. So I'm painting the whole interior right now. So I'm just, you know, got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot going on at the same time. Um, but and somehow, and, as, some, uh-huh. and somehow,
1: you find time to write write these uh, intriguing papers. So that's yeah.
2: Interesting. I'm I'm an early riser. We'll put it that way. <laughs> I don't I don't sleep a lot. So yeah, I've, uh, the papers the papers for me just to shift into that have written at least one paper maybe two papers since we've spoken last and those are i think fairly condensed material i don't know how it looks from your end but it's fairly easy for me because i've had that material uh for many years now and i just haven't put it onto paper in any kind of articulated form
0: mm-hmm. so i've had
2: that material for probably at least eight years at it into a written form. Yeah. So it's it actually is fairly easy for me to to write those. It just, you know, it's uh, have kind of setting aside, you know, a few days to
1: actually do it. Let me Uh, let me then uh, inquire since since you say you've um, been working on this, or, or you've had the basic ideas, I guess, for eight years. Um, And we know that you had, from our previous conversation with you, that you had this interesting uh, Buddhist background and then transitioned into the fourth way. I don't know if that's quite the way you would put it, but um, so in that shift um, in, in your direction of practice, I'm wondering how the material that we'll be discussing shortly... Um, arose for you. I mean, I'm I'm intrigued to know how that arose. I mean, there are clearly some Buddhist, explicitly Buddhist references in uh, these two papers we're going to discuss, but um, but it isn't necessarily an obvious transition, how that how that would have arisen for you. And I'm wondering if there's anything you could say about that
2: about how the transition from the Buddhist influence to the fourth way influence or how that manifested in these papers, (laughs) how it manifested in the papers. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think it's just that I was running, um, you know, I trained in a monastery for a couple of years, which is in monastic terms is, is nothing, you know, that's the, the acolyte phase, but uh, as I might've talked about on the last podcast, it shocked me to my core, you know, there were some pretty, uh, ground shaking changes at that time. And it took me quite a long time to actually, uh, stabilize from that. So I actually am kind of a, a Buddhist refugee in the sense that I couldn't quite make it through the Buddhist training. I was extremely young, you know, I was like 18, 19 when I started, but I needed some life experience, but it, you know, hit me when I was pretty young. So it was a very formative experience in that sense um and so my i had an ongoing interest in the fourth way at the same time so i had kind of all of this stewing in me and i couldn't help but interpret a lot of what i was reading in fourth way texts in light of what i was seeing seeing in a monastic training uh setting
0: yeah
2: and so they kind of uh Uh, you know they gelled in in a somewhat unique way and Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the the buddhist context i saw that awakening was a a real thing that as we talked about i think on the last podcast but i could see a lot of it being expressed really beautifully and dimensionalized in certain ways in the fourth way context that i wasn't seeing in the buddhist context but i always had this felt experience from the buddhist uh training um as a backdrop for how i was understanding fourth way material so you can see me kind of consciously and semi-consciously and unconsciously introducing that sort of bleeding through in the Mm -hmm. way that i interpret the fourth way material and i think that's probably what's unique about the interpretation
0: yeah i i mean i i recall from our last conversation that there was a Because you had this very strong foundational lived experience of something different than the ordinary state of mind, that you also observe that in the, and many practitioners in the fourth way who don't, uh, have that, you know, sort of injection, you know, who are working within the tradition often have, don't have, it's sort of you might have at the core a actual belief that uh, that kind of state is possible, that there's a there's a kind of a subtle pra- practical even. Yeah. That, I mean, that, yeah. But there's a subtle there's a subtle sort of internalization. I've certainly seen this with some not not all by any means uh, practitioners that that the goal is so far out there that it's not really attainable and that only someone a, a giant like Gurdjieff who represents something right. beyond human is a representative of that right. whereas yeah. you come at it at a different from a different place, which is that there's something that's accessible and that that practices his writing the movements, his way of working with people is intended to open that up for people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I as Gurdjieff was just so advanced. It almost just couldn't, couldn't translate. He had a difficult time translating that. Um, to you know, the, the, at the time it was difficult as well. Uh, we've had 70 years of east west intermixing now. Uh, so oh, we, argu-
1: arguably more, yeah. or more, you know,
2: more than that 100 <laughs> the par- years. The,
1: par- the parliament uh, of religions was 1890, I think, something like that. Okay, yeah.
2: right. Okay. But now, in just in popular consciousness over the last 60 years, let's say, sure. it's been just so available in a way that. I mean, there's no way people could have taken that in when Gurdjieff was coming to the West. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah, I think I think that can be a difficulty in the fourth way. But again, my experience was, um, you know, at least as a really young person, sort of uh, at an age where you know I sort of entered monastic training in a distraught despairing state you know Mm -hmm. as a youngster and so i you know the experiences that i had there um were happening to somebody who wasn't was a neurotic person wasn't a special person at all so it really shifted and then also the people that were much more um had been in that practice lineage you know 40 years 50 years and some of the other teachers who came through Um, who had a a lot of depth of experience where also I saw that they were very ordinary people. So when I looked at fourth wave material, we're talking about higher centers and um, things that sound very far away. um, I knew that those are not very far away. So, um, so when I approached Gurdjieff work, for instance, Beelzebub's tales, I had the sense that this is for awakening and also that this can be done, not that it's easy, but that it can be done.
1: But and this is the precisely the point that 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 I want to stress here. I mean, Stuart's already articulated it, but it's like, uh, you know, uh, our te- uh, Sturt's and my teacher, had the view, uh, which he not infrequently expressed, which is that awakening, and and here we'll talk about. In the Gurdjieffian system, and I want to get into the levels of uh, uh, man or human number five. Uh, his view was that was that this is something that you do like a college degree, and then you and then you have a career after that of integration of integration and mm. and uh, and expression and, and and expression. Thank you. That's a nice way to put it. But um, but it's all it's all too easy for people to project onto spiritual uh, maturation or attainment or however you want to uh, describe it. It's all too easy for people to project onto that uh, something that is going to be essentially outside their experience um, for the foreseeable future and and that's an that's a, an unnecessary obstacle that's, this is my view that's an unnecessary obstacle it's an understandable obstacle for for a variety of reasons um it strikes me that when you just described yourself um at 18 or 19 as uh, distraught um and despairing i think you said mm-hmm. that um that 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 the strength of that need created something an opening to look at something beyond the ordinary projections about what's possible and that's an interesting ingredient in your in your makeup which influences these papers that we're going to discuss shortly the ideas we're going to discuss shortly does that make sense
2: yeah, I mean, it came from a core emotional need. Yeah. You know, okay. so.
0: It, it's funny that uh, we're uh, talking about that moment for you because we just ran across a description that a Buddhist friend pointed us to about, um, in Buddhism, there's the uh, the 12 chains of uh, causation that uh, basically uh, start from, uh, 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 I think, delusion and end up with uh, suffering, but there's a, it turns out in a few of the polycanon uh, uh, suttas, there's a 12 chains of liberation. Not talked about as much, but the most interesting well, transition it's is... It's not that,
1: 12 chains, but yeah, uh, 12, 12
0: steps. There's 12 steps, but it's a, it's a, a causal chain that leads to liberation. And hmm. the first link in that chain is that suffering gives rise to faith. And hmm. so suffering is the cause for faith. And then, from there, faith gives rise to more what would be traditionally called enlightened states that mm-hmm. and and given the you know the fourth way focus on conscious suffering that's that that kind of sat with me uh in that uh, I've, I've been sort of reflecting on how does how does my suffering give rise to faith and I don't know that I have so much an answer as I just find it's a, a useful question to hold. Because uh, it shines a mirror on conscious suffering, unconscious suffering, and how sometimes when we're in the darkest places, that that can be the place in which light sort of opens up for us and gives us a sense of direction and purpose.
2: Yeah, it's it's you know faith. I think a lot of times we um, faith is sometimes associated with belief, mm-hmm, yeah. blind belief, and that's a kind of something that hopefully we can tease out in the larger. Culture, because from the atheistic side, it's it's you know it's clear how uh, just belief in religions has caused so much, so and the suggestibility has caused so much harm to so many people. But at the same time, faith as a religious impulse is extremely important for a human being, and we're facing the question. I think Nietzsche, you know, facing a situation as a culture now. That I think was probably predicted pretty accurately by philosophers like Nietzsche, where we're now needing to discover how we're gonna bring religious impulses into an essentially secular culture. Um, and Buddhism is kind of the primary, I think, in the mindfulness movement, seems to be the, the primary thing that's bringing some of those impulses into the culture. But faith is certainly one of those things that's. You know, it's it's not what is faith if it's not a belief in
1: something. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, and the Buddhists also, uh, or many strains of Buddhism, have the pairing of great faith and great doubt, and that those two held together create the fertile ground for for a productive exploration. Um, uh, that is something other than uh, unwarranted belief
2: right yeah it's fascinating
0: yeah Yeah. i mean i think i think when i look at this uh and i use a fourth way model uh, the idea or the unifying element here is that in our secular culture the participation of the feeling center uh, as distinguished from reactive emotions but the participation of the feeling center in our Uh, mentation in our common experience is tuned way 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 down so consequently for secularists faith and belief are indistinguishable because faith is largely about a feeling center um, experience uh, and relationship and belief is more about a structural formal relationship and so with great faith and great doubt uh, an atheist typically has great doubt but no faith, and the challenge is how do you awaken that uh, that engagement of the feeling center in such a way that it balances out how we actually relate to the world around us. Yeah,
2: in general, I I, I tend to associate belief with the mind and faith with the heart. Yeah, much more so.
0: Yeah, and, that, and that's that's how I uh, tend to. Uh, think of it. I mean, there's other ways you can uh, uh, resolve it too, but it's but that that one tends to accord with my intuition that you know faith is a, really a. If I have faith, it's more like a magnetism or a uh, orientation, and it doesn't have specific formal content. It's more like a direction. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now, I'm just wondering, did we stray away from where you wanted me to go, Rob? With the wait, well, i re- I recapitulating, I... you kind of moving into an overarching story of the papers in light of my previous buddhist well of course
1: you you anticipate my next uh uh, question so um so so the answer is yes but there but there's no no issue with straying yeah because it it was an interesting topic to explore uh inherently um but um but let's get back to this question of, of you've you've described how your under how your your uh, youthful context and experiences created a, a a need for you that um that you experienced powerfully and acted upon at the same time you were studying fourth way material how did that study of fourth way material lead to some of the interpretations about um reading beelzebub's tales etc um in the way that we'll we'll further explore as we go on with the conversation
2: yeah so i think there was an intense motivation to at all costs so to speak awaken um which I'm not sure is something I really achieved, but in terms of Beelzebub's tales, there was a transit because I was interested in fourth way as the, as the path to doing that. um, The, the impetus I I was given and the earnestness in a Buddhist uh, context transitioned into a fourth way context. And I perceived Gurdjieff's writings, Gurdjieff's movements, the sittings or inner work that's given as something that could actually lead me in that direction.
1: Okay.
2: And so I had a very intense, uh, I was intensely motivated to actualize Gurdjieff's practices. And, and so it just, it just kind of, and i you know, discovered um, the Two Rivers farm eventually, and that became just for me on a personal level. That was a very um, developing relationship with a community, finding my life partner, starting a family in that context was a really healthy journey. Mm-hmm. Um, on a subjective kind of human, on the level of just my personal development.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But then, with the Fourth Way material my experience in Buddhism sort of transferred into, you know, I sort of saw this material as having everything I would need I to, to actualize what I had witnessed in the Buddhist context. And so that's kind of how I always viewed it. And then as I worked with that material, just the the papers are a reflection of some of the insights that, you know, came out of that process.
1: Well, that's really interesting because uh, um, what i I've wanted to understand the ingredients um, that led you to write these papers, and and what I just heard you say is is that you created the intention to use uh, fourth way working materials to achieve an end that you had seen actualized to a greater or lesser extent in the in the folks. That you studied with um, during your Buddhist phase, and that's that 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 intention. It strikes me is is very important because I don't think it's necessarily the same for everyone who comes to any spiritual tradition um, to actually have the sense that yes, by applying myself, by engaging honestly, with myself through the lens of whatever spiritual tradition um, you choose to work with, that I, that something can actually happen that will change the quality of my ex- life experience. But you had that intention, as you've just described, uh, to do that. And and that's, um, I, I suspect it's more powerful than you realize, or maybe not. But having that ing- having that specific ingredient is very um, um, it's key. It seems to me, and then I'm, I'm I'm I'd be I invite your response to whether you see it similarly.
2: Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, having that aspiration. You know, I mean, if if there's not, I think there's even, I actually don't know all of the Buddhist kind of lists that are. You know, if you if you get into the Theravadan tradition, they're they're all kind of trained in those lists. Whereas in the Zen, they emphasize that much less so. But I think there's the seven factors of enlightenment, and
1: the thirty two marks of enlightenment.
2: Right, yeah, the, the long list, ears, the, the big nose. Yeah. <laughs> right, but the seven <laughs> factors of enlightenment I think are are pretty interesting, and I, I think one of them is something like aspiration or determination or mm-hmm. uh, great energy or Something along those lines that, and that's, we find that in the Gurdjieff work too, you know, where Gurdjieff is saying, you know, this requires basically an all-encompassing drive.
0: Yeah. And then, and then terms like magnetic center come up as ways of trying to point to the presence of something that draws one forward. Yeah. So... Do you, do you... I think
1: it's time to yes. delve into the papers. Yeah, so let, let
0: me let me start sure. by trying to frame some of the materials. So the papers are about ways of reading uh, Gurdjieff's masterwork, All and Everything, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson, which some people have described as a thousand-page koan. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complex, difficult work. And if you approach it uh, like uh, a textbook, you'll be sorely disappointed because uh, the uh, ability to uh, extract information from it is uh, very challenging. And, and we'll get into, that, that's part of your point. But I wanna first start with, in the fourth way tradition, there are uh, major clusters of activity. There's working with the the tales and actually reading uh, Gurdjieff's work seriously. There's the movements, which is a category of sacred dance and music that, uh, challenge one's holding of attention in a body and mind, um, in relationship to executing very complicated group dance activities. And you mentioned the sittings, which are, you know, depending on who you talk to, people will say, this isn't a meditation. other people will say it is a meditation, but, uh, uh, it represents a focusing of attention onto, uh, the organism, the body sensation, um, and the arising of uh, uh, material in the field of consciousness. So when you look at that overall arena, what I think is interesting with what you're suggesting is that each of these represent lines of practice. Uh, They're not about the end in itself, but more about the engagement of the practice. And so maybe we could start there and just, you know, be, before we get into the specifics of all and everything, just talk about your survey of how you relate to these different kinds of uh, elements of the Gurdjieff work.
1: Yeah.
2: It, to me, I see them all as a totality. Um, I think that Gurdjieff um, sort of spread everything out amongst all these practices unknowingly, uh, and essentially created a, a treasure hunt for future generations to kind of piece it all back together. You see him doing that in the tales. But I think um, less well known is, is that he sort of did that um, across these practices. So there are things within the movements that help unlock things within the tales. And things within the tales that help unlock things within the movements and things within the, the sittings, quote unquote, that unlock things within the tails. So there's all of this cross threading that that's there for, uh, you know, someone who really closely attends to these separate practices. So it can form an integrated, uh, totality. And so that's, that's how I approach it.
1: Yeah. So, so did this arise from... This sense of a totality did it arise organically from your own engagement with fourth way practice, would you say, or was there some um, aha moment when some of the cross influences um, sort of seeped into your awareness in such a way that you began to to gradually have have a sense of this picture that you've just uh, elucidated for us.
2: Yeah, I think it's in the beginning for me, it was just theoretically, it seemed to me that well, Gurdjieff is saying, we have to develop these three centers in tandem, separately and together. And so he kind of has these, the tails on the one hand and the movements on the other. And then there's these kind of internal work, energy work, so to speak um woven kind of between the movements and the settings and then of course there's the music which adds an emotional component of course there's emotions involved in all of these things um so they're not really separate but i just had a sense looking at it okay if i'm going to use the choreography work to go all the way so to speak i need to be engaging in all of these um intensively so It's not enough for me just to focus on the tails. I need to master the move, you know, the movements. Um it's really challenging because we don't all have access equally to everything. But that's how I viewed it, partly just because of the three-centered kind of theory. But then increasingly, as you say, it's absolutely true that just organically over time, I began to notice that states. That sittings engendered were being engendered by Beelzebub's tales or in movements that all of these things had a way of stabilizing the attention within some kind of outward movement or activity, whether it's of the mind or the feelings or or actual physical movement. so it also you know and then as I was studying the tales, it's like the tales you're for when you first started, it's just such an immense unknown you know it's just a (laughs) there's there's very few handholds where do you go with these red herrings that you find and so i was just casting around anywhere i could and one of the really helpful places was the movements because i began to see him doing things in canon in the tails um some of the uh kind of almost mathematical way that he constructs the movements I was could see happening in the text and so that kind of led me into gradually understanding it as a series of exercises like the movements. so they did kind of start cross bleeding and I can't fully trace for you what led to what first but they've Mm -hmm. all kind of just bled into each other for
1: me well okay that's 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 a, a, a fair answer and so, but, but to help our listeners grok, what you, what you just uh, uh, pointed to, maybe maybe you could talk about this this feature, the the canon-like um, uh, repetitive features of both the movements and the uh, uh, text as well as the sittings i mean i'm actually interested in what and in, in uh, did you find that to be an arena where there was a kind of canon-like repetition i'm intrigued to know if that uh, arose for yeah. you
2: yeah and i don't know if you guys have uh, done these sittings but there are sittings where you rotate sensation in canon through yeah. the limbs mm-hmm. so right. Right. um yeah and i think uh you know the way that i my current working understanding of this is it seems that Gurdjieff had you know an arc of 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 development of how the way that he developed these practices you can kind of see from some of the extant material so he started we find there are accounts of his teach another the most popular account of his teaching is is Uspensky right it's the most clearly written but there's also another one called the Oragian version yeah which uh is not Read unless you're kind of really in the work, you know, and it's well.
1: It didn't used to be available actually. That yeah, it, it wasn't easily. Spent. Now nowadays in the, in the days of the, days of the internet, yeah. things are different. But
2: it was just kind of a manuscript that was passed around. Right, and it's kind of right. tainted with some of the political, some of the politics of the work, which yeah. is super unhelpful. But what you find in there is just uh, something that reflects exercises that Gurdjieff was giving people early on before he wrote the tales and had developed many of the movements and he's giving people basically counting exercises Um, and then they're sort of looking at the centers combinatorially so you're starting with your mental center and you're you're looking at different aspects of it and then you're look you're observing your behavior and you're observing those first you're observing your trying to observe your say your tone of voice. But then also your facial expression, but then try to be aware of them together, but then try to bring in gesture. so you're kind of cobbling together more and more awareness in this combinatorial kind of way in the in the Urajin version. that's sort of mixed with these counter counting exercises so my the way the way that I understand that is it stands to reason that you know Gurdjieff noticed. That when we try to pay attention to something our mind wanders but mm-hmm. one way of checking that is to um, associate a counting exercise with the area of experience that you're trying to attend to so in the case of a sitting you know we we run attention through the body and sense the limbs but the mind immediately tends to wander and you find yourself 20 minutes later like you know, doing whatever. Um, (laughs) So if you, so if you, uh, you know, who knows what you're going to be thinking about in 20 minutes, but basically if you, at the end of four counts, instead of just going right arm, right leg, left leg, left arm, let's say put placing sensation in each limb at the end of that, you have to skip over one limb and start with your right leg, then left leg, then left leg, leg, then right arm. Well, now you've introduced something that's a kind of alarm clock, or check to make sure that awareness is still present in that activity. And so I sort of see the movements in Beelzebub's tales as a really extended um, application of of, uh, number, the use of number to create attention exercises that require continuous attention to different areas of experience. And I think there's an interesting way to did you want to say something about that, Rob?
1: Well, I'm. I mean, I'm. I really like this insight. The question I have is: Is this original to you, or did you pick up other? I mean, we could we could bring in the enneagram here or something. But but I'm wondering if this basic insight about repetition and then variation in repetition, um, if if this arose for you personally, organically in this in this context <clears throat> excuse me of your you know you're 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 you clearly have the capacity to be an intense guy right that's that's the impression I get from you even though I've never met you in person and and that capacity for intensely working and directing your attention um and then seeing this insight about a feature of Gurdjieff's work that you're arguing, and I think you have good reason to argue, is common to these three lines that you've just been describing, three lines of practice. I'm wondering if this if this if you picked this up from someone and then confirmed it in your own experience, or if you or if it developed as we were saying before, organically, out of your intense engagement with the three lines of practice.
2: I mean, I would say this is a theory of my own confection. Uh,
1: Very good. But that's
2: what what we find. uh, I've never heard anyone else arguing this, Mm -hmm. but to me, it seems pretty straightforward and common sense when you really look at the material. This is what seems to kind of logically come out of it when you look at Mm -hmm. the different periods of Gurdjieff's life as he was what exercises was he giving people in different periods and you see this development of these exercises and it started with just people doing counting exercises while they were doing physical work but then it sort of got elaborated into all these dances and then of course we have Beelzebub's tales starting in the mid-20s so anyway that's kind of just a, a broad historical look at the Gurdjieff work practices and like how did he come up with these? Um, yeah. And that's, that's what I've sort of developed Got it. Uh, and of how to understand that.
0: So, so then if, if we get into more specifically into how you looked at all and everything, we can start with the first paper. And in the first paper, you really un, unpack a kind of a way to structurally relate to the text in terms of uh, what you call mo- objects and modifiers and and out of that then there's a uh an assertion which we can get into uh a, about the the nature of the difficulty of the text and what we have to do with our attention in order to hold this but maybe we could start with how you understand objects and modifiers and then what what that means in terms of what's showing up in the text
1: by the, by the way just for the heck of it we should why don't you give us the title of the uh, first paper that we're you're about to discuss material from?
2: Uh, I don't know. If I can, maybe you should read it. I don't actually remember the title <laughs> uh, of okay, uh, Gurdjieff, it. Uh, uh, Gurdjieff's exact language.
0: Stuart's actually right. got it here on his iPad. here so it's kind of a
2: long-winded title, actually. Yeah, a
0: Universal Language, Gurdjieff's Exact Language, okay. New Tools for Insight into Beelzebub's Tales. And this was uh, uh, submitted to the All and Everything Conference in 2020. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so
2: long, I can't remember it. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the point. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the paper's really focusing on cobbling together recorded statements of Gurdjieff about language, because he states in his, in Beelzebub's tales that there's two prerequisites for self-observation. One is an exact language and the second one is sincerity. And sincerity I get because you'd kind of, you'd have to be honest really to look at yourself. But the exact language I think is much less intuitive. But here he is saying this is one of two prerequisites. So I kind of in that paper take that, take that on and Look at his his statements and then apply those to uh, a new theory or a new approach to understanding Biel's Web's tales as his exact language. Um that takes a little bit of elaboration to understand what an exact language is and well, what that all means. But Yeah, let's
0: well, well let's talk about that a little bit because the yeah. exact language is is something that uh is emphasized. We know other folks who have a strong center of gravity around the, the tales, you know, emphasizing this idea of an exact language. And in a way, in the modern intellectual climate of the uh, early 21st century and the late 20th century, there's a it's it's certainly fanciful to assume there is no exact language. That language by its very nature is uh, completely relative. And um, so how would you how do you de- understand exact language?
2: Yeah, so Gurdjieff, uh, the first thing to differentiate it from is philosophical jargon. So in, the, in many fields of study, there ends up being um, a proliferation actually of terms that are used in a very specific and stable way for experts in the, in that industry. And that's just so experts can communicate effectively. But you kind of have to get into that field and really learn get the ropes and learn all that. But so in philosophy, you know, if I haven't studied a lot of philosophy, but I'm assuming like Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason probably has a lot of really well-defined terms where the terms are being used in a stable way. So you're taking a word, defining it with a series of other words, which have their own definitions and applying that in the same way um, over and over. So that's kind of what I'm calling philosophical jargon. Um, and i know that you have a, an academic background rob so you might be able to you know describe <laughs> that more clearly
1: but i don't know you're 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 doing fine and um uh, on that and and i'm interested in how you relate that to the exact language idea
2: yeah so so in in the uspensky version of the Gurdjieff work you sort of see the the exact language I think is mistakenly associated with terms like identification, internal considering, and kind of this, uh, that there's these three centers and you memorize all the places on the diagrams of the Gurdjieff had these, for people who don't know, Gurdjieff had these complex diagrams describing different levels of the universe, different levels of a human being and how they interact. So there's kind of a sense that it's, it's a philosophical, Kind of intensely systematic, you another know, jargon Another jargon. And, yeah. But what I what I think Gurdjieff is saying at all, and what I would actually relate it to is unity, that everything is organized around unity, um, and there's a lot that I could say about that, but maybe just to, to, to a good, a good place to start would just be that Gurdjieff noticed um, that in interacting human beings, were exchanging words, but then we have a whole worldview, a whole personal context that we're bringing to the way that we understand words. And so, you know, a person's whole worldview or whole current state or whole current day comes into the word that they use, and then that's received by another person, and it goes into this totally different filter. So people are kind of moving through the world with very different filters. There's a lot of different systems now that have articulated that as well. But Gurdjieff back in the early 1900s was, you know, noticing that people weren't understanding each other accurately, or, you know, seeking to understand in what context another person meant something that they were saying. So it's not to say that there's a way of understanding the exact language, not too precisely, which is kind of a contradiction, but just him saying that this seeking to actually understand the total, you know, the whole of another person to take that into account and to take the whole of oneself into account when perceiving the language that's being exchanged in any given context.
1: Well, that's that's um, very int- that's interesting because uh, I'm 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 intrigued. I'm I'm relating it uh, as you were speaking uh, to some of the work that Robin Bloor has done with his books about understanding the tales and where where etymology is foregrounded, right? The etym- etymological uh, journey that words take over time, and he's he seems to focus in particular on on earliest meanings uh, that that words can have, but also understanding that there is this proliferation of meanings or changes changing meanings, and that would be part of what your I don't know if you use the word viewpoint, but the, but the individual perspective of each person as they try to communicate with one another, um, this this etymological strain is present for each person. but then, as you as you point out, that there are these separate viewpoints um, uh, based on personal experience, uh, you know, how a word was first used when a person heard it as a kid, for example. In terms of the emotional content of that word or, or associations of that word, um, I think this is a. Um, I'm intrigued by this by this combination of of, of uh, bringing that aspect into what you're saying, which I think is exactly right, and that Gurdjieff is is pointing to it, and then ironically using the word exact um, or objective. Um, in a way to, and that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a feature of, of these two papers that I really like about what you're doing is that, is that, um, you, you, you recognize and even celebrate that Gurdjieff is playing with language himself as he's talking about how people unconsciously play with language. Does Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, I think we get we get into the weeds right when we get into words like objective and how can yes. it be truly objective and exact? How could it truly be exact? Right. You know, everything is, you know, postmodernism showed that everything is kind of situated in a, right. a in a very subjective context. And we have this complexity problem where we can't actually establish everything that's uh, behind uh you know, any given phenomena. So, or point of view. So there's kind of like, so there's some, there's some limitations we have perceptually as human beings actually have an exact language. So I think we should uh, just reasonably not take that too literally. Um,
1: and uh, well, uh, uh, that's a mild statement because, because I think <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, and, and, and I get it, but, but to get back to the, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, but you have already brought up the word unity and, and, and it's precisely the cultivation of the capacity to hold more than one meaning simultaneously. Um, that is, um, that is key here. And unity points to that, right? Yeah. and essence, I don't know that.
2: Right. So unity is there's a way in which Gurdjieff is using um, using ideas as as mental objects to create a state of unity, essentially. So that unity is is always a part of everything that's being expressed. Is always manifesting through everything that's expressed, and it's the expression of unity through everything that is the most exact. But it's something so precise and so profoundly direct that it's the only thing that's essentially unchangeable and exact in that sense. So there's there's a way that this is oriented and built upon an experience in one's being that I think Gurdjieff was actually referring to, and the way that ideas and perceptions arise as we move away from a state of unity into multiplicity. And then, you know, we become relativized to specific subjective points of view, but then create a, a split or a division and these apparent <clears throat> contradictions. And then we kind of get inexact in that sense. So I think Gurjief was actually relating this all to awakening to unity but the only reports we have of this are through Spensky. So it was relayed in a way that sounded philosophical, uh, which I think it's actually less philosophical
0: yeah. than right. that. But um, well, what I see you doing uh, <coughs> in, in your articulation of how to approach all and everything is not, you're not trying to find the meaning. You're trying to find the experience and that's a that's a profound difference because a lot of people relate to this incomprehensible text by saying, what does this mean what is, what do you know what is, what are the level what are the seven levels of allegory here and 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 you know we want a roadmap to basically tell us everything and what I got from your approach to this is if you treat this as a practice, the nature of the text read with a certain way will elicit or support the development of a quality of attention that opens for us this deeper sense of meaning, uh, which I would equate to or attribute to this, this notion of unity. <clears throat> the unity of being is present there. And if you tune into that as you engage with this material, uh, part of the way to do that is to be able to hold all of these things <laughs> All of these, as you call them, lines and objects and modifiers and incomplete thoughts and, um, uh, you know, images that show up one place and then don't show up for another thousand pages, uh, holding that soup together, the quality of attention that's required to do that is pulling out of us a uh, an expression of being, and it's experiential. It's not, it's, it's not, there's not a roadmap, it's, it's, it's an experience. Is that, am I kind of characterizing what you're saying correctly?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that we use our mind is also the way that we're using our attention. And then that affects our nervous system, right? So there's a way of using the mind and the attention as it manifests through the mind to create a state of the nervous system, for sure. But I, I, don't, I don't want to lose people who are listening. And I wonder if what I would want to say about Gurdjieff's exact language is that it's important to seek to understand each other as fully as possible, rather than to insert our own subjectivity into things, to get kind of outside of ourselves and really try to understand other people and to also take stock as much as we can of ourselves and what we are bringing to situations. And that's ask questions. When we talk about an exact language, it's practical in that way of the way that we come to interactions with each other. And I, th- I think that's probably the most grounded place to start with Gurdjieff's notion of exact language. And we could use that to then talk about how the tails assists in that process of becoming more attentive to the meaning that we're placing into words. Well, I'll invite you to, to go
1: ahead and do that, but um, <clears throat> the word weeds you used. Uh, a few minutes ago in this discussion uh strikes me as as the place where people get bogged down but what i hear what i'm hearing you say is that the 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 weeds are part of an ecosystem and we need to understand the interaction of the parts of the ecosystem in just the same way as you're suggesting that we need to understand to, to, as best we can, try to understand what other people are saying as well as what we're actually trying to say. And that's as close as we're going to get to an exact language. Um, in other words, exact language is an aim. It's not a thing. Or it's a process and not a thing. Is that a, is that a fair summary of that? Um.
2: Yeah, I think I think that's that's definitely an aspect of it. Mm-hmm. I think in the most profound sense, Gurjef by exact language means everything expresses unity. And so in that sense is, is exactly what is happening, is exactly reality in a certain way. Everything is exactly what it is. In exactly oh, the way that it is. So there's a there's a way in which I think he's um so I would I would say there's a very profound level to the exact language in that sense, but there's also a common sense. There, there's d- different levels, just like with everything. Uh, Gurdjieff, every concept in the work traverses different levels, from very practical common sense. We're here as human beings trying to work out our issues to survive on this planet. You know, in this very, in this. You know we're we're in a in a very complex reality that none of us fully understands, and we're trying to cope with, and all the way up to, you know, what's been called awakening, um, but or or unity is another word for it. So all these concepts apply all across a whole spectrum between these two things: unity and multiplicity, is what I would say.
1: Thank you. I, 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 I hope uh... that makes
0: sense. <laughs> It, it, it does, but I'm, I'm trying to relate this partly to some of what I see you allude to in uh, uh, your second paper, which is unity and multiplicity in uh, mm-hmm. Beelzebub's tales, and that's the notion of the non-dual, the absolute versus the relative, or the non-dual versus the dualistic view, and you're, you're bringing those, those terms in there. Um, Often, the fourth way is not figured as a, a non-dual teaching. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, you have, in my experience, you have to look for it. And then when you look for it, you find it um, in the, much of the way that you're describing. But to say, what I'm understanding you saying is that exact language in this sense is, is is the expression of the unity and multiplicity and the multiplicity and unity and the relationship of the two.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, everything is everything is expressed through all of these different um, modes. Well, that's, um, uh, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, the, so part of what I'm saying in the exact language paper is just that when we look at the Beelzebub Stiles, we have a very complex allegory. And so there's the immediate sense of, well, how would I know that any given interpretation of that allegory was correct? And so there's a a pretty quickly despair sets in, and a loss of interest. Um, Because it just seems like, you know, the mind is a pattern finding machine. And how do you, you know, what does it mean to to interpret any of the allegories? And what does that actually do for somebody? And so what I'm sort of pointing to there is establishing the notion that there are exact meanings in Beelzebub's tales, but that they're moving. They're inside of a, a larger conceptual space that the author establishes, but in which these different metaphors are like objects being moved around that have to be continuously attended to from different perspectives and that's a way of just like the canon and the limbs of a sitting it's a check to make sure mentally the person's still reviewing the situation with all of those perspectives in mind and so it's it's a very ingenious work it's very complex so there's a number of you have to see a few dozen examples of that, that's kind of the idea of an exact language. I use to sort of establish this idea that the metaphors or the symbols are objects, which then have to be attended to actively as they move.
0: And they'll so the, they'll, they'll change their relationship, and they'll change potentially their meaning in different parts of the uh, story.
2: There have many different meanings, right. and so, so rather than the idea that well you could just interpret this any way, according to Gurdjieff, things would be very exact.
0: Yeah, and, and so that's
2: actually what we find in so the here
0: let me let me pull up an example that I felt uh, from your paper that I I thought was really interesting because I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me, uh, and just you bringing it up was a good illustration of what you're describing here, and it's the Meaning of endlessness. So often in the book, endlessness is, you know, it's all caps, you know, it's important, it's the absolute, it's our, you know, it's God, it's the, uh, the totality of being. And my lazy approach to the work is every time I see endlessness, I'm likely to um, uh, stop really checking <laughs> whether endlessness really means endlessness in the way that i thought it meant in this particular context and so you show examples in the text where endlessness for the text to actually make quite a lot of sense endlessness could actually be uh, fixed egoic consciousness because uh, real living consciousness is always changing whereas fixed egoic consciousness is endless in the sense that it doesn't change and and so then you suggest that endlessness moves from being uh, a shorthand for the absolute in another place, it may be shorthand for uh, egoic consciousness, fixed consciousness. And when you say that you have to be aware of these objects moving part, partly it's the modifiers themselves that give you hints, but it's, it's something that you have to attend to with your attention that nothing is ever exactly what it seems within that book. And you can't, and so it's it's very dynamic. Things are changing constantly, and you have to move with that in order to really get what the message is. is it-
2: yeah, yeah. Just in the case of endlessness, I mean, his name is Endlessness. He could have just called him God, but then when you read the primary chapter where it's the story of Endlessness, right, and his his dilemma, and what's Endlessness's main dilemma? He's running out of time.
0: Or running so, out of space, yeah, running out of space or running out of time
2: well in a certain amount of time, his abode yeah. is going to erode, right. and so mm-hmm. he ha- there's a forced need to create the universe to sort of maintain himself, and so there's a number of there's a whole number of levels associated with that, but that's a primary inexactitude um, and for those who don't know you an know, inexactitude in Gurdjieff's theory of art inexactitudes are the primary mode of communication is embedding meaning inside of a a kind of a contradiction so anyway we have endlessness running out of time and one way to interpret that is is the way in which we've sort of insulated ourselves from a feeling of our own death a visceral feeling of our own death and we kind of don't think it's coming right until it's actually coming we kind of think we're we're endless in that sense, but we're actually about to die and and die forever, you know, and with how long the universe is, it's actually quite terrifying. But we're very well insulated from that. And in fact, we think we're the center of the universe. Oftentimes, and endlessness is both the center of the universe. Everything is oriented around him. And he's running out of time. There's something actually impinging on his ability to exist in that state forever. So there's a way in which endlessness represents the self sort of self-centered ego in that way. But he's also in this endless multiplicity that Gurdjieff described. Um, You know, our fragmented state is sort of this endless um, series of eyes, but also endlessness you can see as boundlessness or infinite consciousness or you know insert whatever you want there he's at the top of the scale um so so just in the the character of endlessness you can kind of see these opposites right arising in the context of the story and those become very difficult to integrate but it's the integration of those opposite views of one and the same object which i would say represents the the path within the book, and endlessness is one of the primary uh, characters there.
0: So, so it's not a, but in a way, the integration happens with the recognition of a a meaning that transcends the embodiment of that of of the meaning in the form. In other words. <laughs> Endlessness is a symbol that may mean one thing in one place in the book and another thing in another place in the book. And if we are reading with our ordinary mind, there'll be a tension because we want to, we want to equate the two. And if we let go of that, if we can let go of uh, uh, the ide- identification with the symbol, then we can experience momentarily what's being pointed to. At a different level in one at one point in the book, and still participate and see what's being pointed to at a different point in the book am I, is that my, am I following uh, how you're describing that
1: yeah,
2: I think that's that's getting close to it, but just just the idea that multiple points of view exist within one allegory okay. and our tendency is to look at things from one point of view, not to look at things holding multiple points of view. And so all of these stories require integrating multiple points of view for the different anomalies to become coherent, because the anomalies are just referring to um, several diff- several deeper sets of interpretations that include
1: multiple points of view. So the, yeah, go ahead, Rob. Well, I was just going to say, uh, uh ask if you, if your um your use of so you've got objects and modifiers as Stuart was pointing to mm-hmm. earlier, and then there's uh, the different interpretations, but the modifiers are helping regulate the foregrounded meaning in any particular snippet of the text is that, is that is that correct
2: yes and yes that's that's exactly the case. And there are also modifiers right next to each other in a chain in single statements in which at each point in the statement, the initial object is going through a series of displacements, a series of points of view. And that I find particularly interesting because that's exactly what we find in the movements is that the dancer has to hold a combination of, of postural elements, but mm-hmm. change the whole the whole configuration that's being held in the entire body completely from one moment to the next. And so there's a way in which what Gurdjieff called verbal formulas, but his use of language in the tales requires a complete reconfiguration of the object's the arrangement of all of the objects in a given story at each point through that story. Yeah. So it's actually a range from a, so in, in the Gurdjieff movements, we have the multiplication where you kind of have to have that background knowledge of the series of multiplications to then move through that series as a group. And each particular person is visualizing the group personal positioning from that knowledge of that multiplication. Does that make sense? Yeah. And we're probably losing some listeners here who haven't done movements, but I'll proceed with the analogy, I guess, anyway. (laughs) Um, And exactly the same thing is happening in the tales where the reader has to be actively visualizing a very large nested set of stories as they 're reading any given story, and it 's exactly that particularity in the book that has tripped so many people up and kept them from making progress uh, on my view
1: and uh, so you 're saying that um, that they're not the, the, the people who you 're su- uh, suggesting have been tripped up mm-hmm. by beelzebub 's tales um, have not realized. That they need to be keeping a bigger context in mind, striving to be, to maintain a bigger context of interpretive possibility to any particular aspect. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
2: Well, when when Gurdjieff, when when Beelzebub says he's giving you a, an explanation of something, um, in one of the early chapters, and he says, you know, it's information I'm giving you you'll only fully understand later when I tell you about all of the laws of world creation and world maintenance. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeds to tell you a story. When I was first reading the book, I don't, it's like, I didn't know what he was, What what's he going to say? I mean, that's 600 pages later. Right. So apparently I'm going to, I'm about to be given information, which I can't understand until I get this needed context, which I'm not going to get for 600 pages.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's what you find with the book is that there's he's just simply spread that out. And what I'm saying is simply that we need to know what he says in the laws of world creation and world maintenance and come back and link that to that particular section.
1: Well, okay, so this this leads me to an interesting question. So my own... Spiritual practice um, was a series of impressions, mostly from direct interaction with my teacher and and i didn't have I had faith that there were that there were linkages as a, especially early on I had faith that there were linkages between one response to my um, mechanical activities and manifestations, that would later become apparent to me. So um, so isn't what you're just saying, is that not an occasion for the cultivation of faith? That in fact, there will be a context that's provided that if I hold this as a question, because I don't understand it now on page 200, that when I get to page 800, um, there will be something that I can relate. So it's cultivation of faith and maintaining the question without letting it go. That combination is that, does that make sense to you?
2: Yeah, totally. Especially the second part. Because, I mean, who cares? Well, stepping back, I mean, for most people who don't have a relationship with the work or the tales, it's like, who cares about doing all of these fancy manipulations and connecting one part of the book? And, mm-hmm. like, who cares? Right. Um, and what I do in my second paper, hopefully, is I just try to describe a little bit. How this process of holding a question from one area of the book and then actively collecting bits that apply to it without coming to a conclusion yet is a way for Gurdjieff to give the reader a taste of how to fully look into something that Mm -hmm. isn't arriving for us all in one piece. It's something we see over time. And a lot of experience but it does require putting things um so that's so that that's how i understand that and with what you say about holding a question i think is related to that of looking into something not just saying ah that's just that's just that and i know what that is but that there's a a long and deep exploration of a subject without coming to a conclusion, and so that that's something that's required that's a factor that's inculcated into the reader just in the way that the book requires you to engage with it with the tales right.
1: yeah and that's where the faith comes in for me because um, uh, when I first met my teacher, I had no faith that life <laughs> had any had any direction or purpose and the further I go, the more confirmation I find in small, the smallest detail and the greatest arc of how that works. So, um, But I don't think I could have held questions in that way without the assertion that, that in fact, that will be of use.
0: Yeah, right. It's interesting that you, uh, when we're using the word faith here, and earlier in our conversation, we were uh, uh, talking about faith as a feeling center um, activity. And a linkage that just came up to me was a quote that I ran across from uh, Morris Nichol in his psychological commentaries, where he describes consciousness as knowing altogether, Conscience is feeling altogether, and since the awakening of conscience is such a central axis around which the tales revolves in the story of Shimash, that and as the the vehicle or the for contemporary uh, human beings to actually counter the effects of their uh, ego of consciousness, this. Relation of conscience as feeling altogether is, in a way, another gloss on what we're talking about. Because in order to hold that space, I have to feel all of these things together. Uh, I can't, I can't just collapse them into uh, uh, answers and then kind of move on. I have to hold this garden of, of these different ideas and these different images and these different potential meanings and feel that as a totality. And that feeling is awakening my conscience.
2: Yeah, and that's the tales is really good for that. So when you when you start to see these metaphors, and the way that they intentionally divide, and then also develop within those divisions, you know, range of ideas or feelings, each symbol or each metaphor, gradually becomes a way of alluding to a whole variety of thoughts and feelings and stimulating those through one word or one phrase. So there's a way in which the, the metaphors are expanding awareness using these all these allegories. He's alluding to different things, and each allusion is a series, just like in the movements there are series of postures or series. So it sort of calls to mind a whole group of, of, of emotional impulses of one kind, but then calls to mind a whole different grouping and brings them all into the awareness space of the reader so that they're felt together at the same time. Because the real d- challenge that we have as human beings is that we feel one way one time, but then we feel a different way another time. Whereas the full cycle of our of our moods and states actually being held together in awareness creates a really different response to any given thing that's arising. So that's what's really powerful about Beelzebub's tales is its ability to expand um, just the space of awareness through time.
1: That's really interesting. But I I got lost when you said uh, early at the Mm -hmm. beginning of this last statement of yours Mm -hmm. about dividing metaphors. Can you explain what you mean by that? Right. So, So essentially when we were
2: talking about, and we can't, it's hard to give examples without actually working with a given exercise. Okay. But just, just a a metaphor is just something that X equals Y. So we're interpreting the metaphor as meaning something else. So we were talking about endlessness as being the self-centered ego earlier. So that's one meaning or one interpretation. But there are other interpretations. So when I say dividing a metaphor, I mean just intentionally looking at it as though it meant two different things. Got it. Okay. And so because metaphors have that capacity, it's possible with what I'm calling modifiers, it's possible to attach to them specific connotations that bring out those different meanings Such that those co arise in the awareness of the reader. And that's where you could get into the verbal formulas or the exact language. But the really, the, the reason it's practical, the reason it's meaningful, is that Gurdjieff invented a totally new way to get inside the cognition of a person and expand awareness of emotional states, mental states to bring, um, to arrange knowledge together, such that all of the correct pieces and emphasis is actually present at the moment an idea is cognized. So there's also, I, I realize it gets kind of abstract, but we'd have to look at specific examples. This is a really interesting and novel use of language that he's developed to be, to create a certain wholeness of thought or inculcate a certain wholeness of thought for the reader.
1: That's, that's interesting. yesterday I happened to be listening to a talk by uh, Richard Rohr who is this Franciscan priest who's um written a number of interesting books and he he was he made the statement something along the lines of you know uh, uh, there's knowledge and there's wisdom and wisdom is knowing when to apply what particular aspect of knowledge at a given moment and in a given context. And what I'm hearing you say is that is that that's what Gurdjieff is actually training or attempting to train the reader to do. And the other thing that's striking me now is this uh, this really interesting point that you made earlier in the conversation that's in your paper about how a string of modifiers different strings of modifiers of 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 the same object create different divisions i guess you would put you, you, you would put it a moment ago divisions of metaphors um which which link in interesting ways depending on the context in which those uh, objects and modifiers are um, placed in the text is that is that is that, am i understanding that that uh, correctly i i think so um i think i'm following you there okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh i think so so my what you find is that there are there are stories there are tales different places and mm-hmm. one tale you may have one character who can be viewed from different lenses Okay. And that same character, those different lenses are established as separate characters in other story arcs. So a given tale can be a really dense compression of a whole series of relationships or, um, or um, I guess relationships would be the best way mm. uh, that are established in other stories as separate characters, but then are alluded to in such a way that they all come together and are cognized or held together at the same time in the mind of the reader in a given story. Very interesting.
0: And so just to use the simple example that we brought out that uh, with the change of endlessness, you also describe uh, various permutations of how uh, endlessness could refer to Gurdjieff himself, it could refer to Beelzebub, it could refer to, uh, I think uh, you said, uh, Hussein, Beelzebub's grandson. Uh, and there's different ways in which this can show up, and we and is it do you find that it's it 's simply holding a space for the possibility um, or do you find that you actually have a structural intuition of these changes more specifically at different places in the book, so that what you 're really looking at is the topology of what he's describing as opposed to the uh points with which he's describing it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, right? You have to just be open to, I, I think that one shouldn't be concerned about being too correct. You know, you want to have fun with it, right? You want it to be an intuitive process. Hold on.
1: Hold on right there. You want to have fun with it? Really? You, you, want, to have fun. you want to have, <laughs> man, it is. Sorry. Sorry. I couldn't resist. <laughs> there, there
2: there are many jokes on the reader in the tales <laughs> that you don't get for quite a while many okay. many jokes but yeah i mean you want to have fun with it and i think that the the best common sense rule for approaching it is just if you find better information for thinking about something from a different perspective be open to it you know it's totally fine to, to just play with it but when you think about it's not just about thinking things from different perspectives it's also about each perspective has an emotional quality
1: yeah
2: connected to it but then even more importantly any given area of the text that you're listening to there's a whole series of objects that are held in awareness as that text as the text is unfolding so really the experience the experience of it i 'm arguing should really be much more like movements
1: mm-hmm. well let me let me propose, like let, let me propose another um, way to think about this uh, the overall point that you're making which is which is um you know, I, I'm I'm thinking of you. you described uh, this uh, text as being nested, uh, nested stories, and and that's true, of course. And yet, it's not just. There was a there was a movie um, decades ago called the Saragossa Manuscript, based on what, what I understand to be an actual manuscript from the Middle Ages. I could be wrong about that but it was a a, a nested series of stories and it was mesmer. I found it mesmerizing. Um, And, and, and there's a, there's a way in which Beelzebub's tales is mesmerizing on many, on many levels in the ways that you've just uh, pointed to. But the metaphor that's come up, that's come up for me is that it's not just a, one set of nested Russian dolls, which is like stories nested within each other. But it would be like like a whole uh, dozens, hundreds, thousands of nested dolls um, unnesting themselves next to one another, different characters relating to each other in, in, in different ways. And I'm and I'm just, uh, and I don't think before I read these papers of yours that I ever had a sense of, I mean, I had a sense of, I've had a sense on occasion reading tales of this unknowable complexity. But actually, um, this point you just made a moment ago about playing with it is such a different perspective that, Um, opens up things to people that they would otherwise not um, have access to. And that sense of play, you can do have serious play, but that sense of not being frozen to find the exact meaning, because there's more than one meaning going on, is really is really crucial here, and so I, I'm. Um, uh, if nothing else, these papers have have helped me to to appreciate that, um, as with anything else, play is crucial to unlocking our tendency to remain frozen in place. Mentally and emotionally, and so what you're, what I hear you saying in this conversation, as well as in the papers, is precisely that um, uh, what Gurdjieff's inviting the reader to do is to unlock from whatever set of ideas and emotions, and that adding emotions in is very important here. Um, that they're used to that. They're used to manifesting, just as we have habits of gesture, habits of expression, etc. Um, he's playing with habits of expression in this book. So I'm, 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 I, uh, I, I really uh, am appreciating what you're bringing forward here. It's very important to bring that aspect of having fun that was one of our uh, stewards of my teachers uh, that that was the thing he would most often say to people have fun that was uh, you know his yeah. little um what's what's the word uh, um well it was an aphorism oh, that oh, that he sense was sense of humor oh yeah right yeah. <laughs> that's right s- sense yeah. of humor s e n s a h u m o r
2: yeah. By by the way, many many of the interpretational shifts, the really no. large ones, require a sense of humor. In yeah. the
1: time. Okay. So, Fair enough. And I, that yeah. I've seen that a little bit myself. I don't, I, yeah. I cannot claim to have read them with as great uh, um, as great a sense of attention as you have brought to this, because otherwise, um, because you're you're bringing out stuff that that. I have seen at moments, but not as, um, as comprehensively as you offer uh, a vision of in these papers.
0: So, so there's a, there's a area I want to touch on um, that goes to the unity and multiplicity. Can, can
2: I, can I respond to that? What he just oh, said yeah, please, just please. real quick. So I just yeah. want to affirm what you said is that my intention is to hopefully make this fun Make it accessible, say you can understand this. Mm-hmm. It requires a hell of a lot of work, but mm-hmm. it's totally fun work to do. And it. it's totally meaningful work. And it will affect you. It will affect you in your daily life. And we can think about that as just like using the full range of motion that your body has every day, right? And these exercises entails. Require full range of motion conceptually, constantly having a new thought, brand new thought about it every time, not sort of establishing a point of view and holding that point of view and building on that. That's not what I'm saying. So I I really hope to bring that as this is a way of making oneself more open minded and and having fun. So,
0: yeah, and I brought that out. Yeah, and just to say that that that's the earmarks of a complete teaching, you know, like something that has that it has that power uh, when you go back to it, it's it can be something different because it's alive. It's not. It's not it's dead. alive. Yes. So, so one of the points I wanted to get to that jumped out at me. I can't remember if it was in the unity and multiplicity, but you draw. You're you're talking about awakening, and you're looking at you know. The Buddhist intuitions of what that means, and the uh, fourth way intuitions, and you mention Gurdjieff's uh, comment about uh, uh, man's nothingness, and uh, and bring the uh, analogy of the Buddhist notion of dependent origination and the idea that we don't have there's no separate enduring self. That self is a process. It just it arises and passes, and is completely a function of causes and conditions and i'm interested you know I, i'm interested in that point uh because that i often when gurdjieff's notion of nothingness is introduced for people or that a man is a nullity or you must find your nullity um, it can be taken with an emotional tone that uh you know i'm, I'm a piece of crap you know it's like and that uh, I'm so terrible that, that you know, there's, there, there's, but.
1: There's no, I'm so terrible. Yeah, there's no we, possibility yeah, there's of no possibility me doing anything. For me. Whereas,
0: whereas you're, you're uh, asserting it personally, I think quite rightly, but you're asserting that, uh, that this is a, in fact, a, uh, a feature of the nature of self that uh, we have to understand. It. And Gurdjieff is pointing to that. In some respects, uh, what we've just been talking about in terms of the changing nature of the text of all and everything is, is a reflection and a demonstration that that is a mirror for us of that very happening. So uh in your experience in the fourth way tradition, do you feel like your interpretation of that nothingness is, uh, from a Buddhist perspective is shared? Is that the common understanding or do you feel like you are bringing an intuition in that uh, doesn't always have a seat at the table in uh, some traditional fourth-way considerations.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we all bring something to the table, like Joseph Azizi, well, you know, with his, but you interviewed him recently, I believe, you know, he'll bring the Christian context and those Mm -hmm. things will be, be salient to him because of the Christian background. And so he'll notice things that, you know, make correlations that I wouldn't make. And so I'm bringing, you know, a little bit of Buddhist background in. And, um, you know, there's always the potential for that to be a false correlation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think in this case, it isn't. And on that point, there's, you know, what you find in the Eastern traditions, which are explicit about awakening, you kind of have to infer it through esoteric christianity more so but they're really explicit about awakening in the eastern religions but in hinduism or some of these other ones they they talk about the supreme self or atman as a way of describing the experience of becoming one with the universe or it's all kinds of experiences that can happen um whereas in buddhism they talk about it as no self and so self can really apply to the supreme self or the, the little self and so this is kind of becoming become a term that i think has been conflated a little bit and i i actually don't i would personally subscribe to the view that gurdjieff is not saying that we're developing a permanent psychological self that will float on after this body dies and when we're creating real i you know, he's, he, he's saying you have to experience your nothingness in preparation for experiencing real I. Yeah. And I think we've somewhat interpreted that psychologically as building a kind of psychological self or a will in that sense, when, um, I, I do understand it more as there's a certain, there's a a certain humility, you know, in looking at one's what is actually occurring, and seeing it in the way that it's occurring, that precedes experiencing something beyond this the constructed psychological self.
0: So, yeah. yeah. So, so on that uh, theme, and he, I'm glad you mentioned Joseph Azizi because uh, he brings in a Christian intuition. To be sure, but he also, in his book and uh, a little bit in our conversation, was also uh, decrying what might be called the uh, easternization of the uh, uh, of the work through the foundation in what was called the new work mm-hmm. and i I wanted to ask you about that because you have experiential uh, depth about buddhist practice and fourth-way practice you've done sittings in a traditional fourth-way sense you've done buddhist meditation in a zen context um how do you see do you do you? how do you understand that do you see that as a uh enriching you know conversation between traditions or do you see it as there's something that the sittings give us that you don't necessarily find in the uh uh Importation of uh, let's say a, a, a Zen meditation format, and that that's coming more from a failure to recognize what's really available in the work along the lines of what we've been talking about for the last couple of hours.
2: This is a really really complex topic. Uh, so the the work is a really young tradition. It's a super young tradition, and if you look at Zen. Zen as a tradition now has split into multiple, you have Rinzai Zen, you have Soto Zen. The Zen that I um, had brief experience with was a mixture of Rinzai and Soto. And so at different times, at different places, you know, a practice has to take on different qualities. And I think Jean de Salzman needed something that she found through partially Zen influence, which emphasized deceptive approach, and I think that's totally uh I think she was following her path in doing that, and I think people needed that uh, that she was working with probably to some extent too um I personally think in similar to the I personally think we need to be really open minded about what could be needed for any individual person and I think you can sometimes need that hardcore intensity on the one hand and sometimes you need that receptivity. So I think we can look at these changes or these tensions within the work culture which is very young which is starting to experience these different tendencies relating to each other in in our collective consciousness in the work as really starting to find a relationship between these different qualities, all of which have a seat at the table. Um, I would just hesitate to overemphasize one and disallow another um, outright would be my, my view. Um, You know, and I'll probably leave it there, but I think, I think we'll just as in Zen, we saw, Rinzai and Soto both develop in different Soto developed for the aristocracy Rinzai developed for the samurai class that things have to take on a different form depending on who's doing them and Gurdjieff you know was a had a certain personality type and a certain personal qualities that really leaned towards this harsh um almost sadistic at times, flavor, um authoritarian flavor. And that just doesn't work for everybody. And I think it's a mistake to think the way that Gurdjieff did things is the way it should always be. But I think, again, being open-minded, I think we should try to see what place all of these different things have and keep, Keep our eyes on reality as the emphasis and not the work as a tradition. Because, I mean, the work is just hopefully helping us see reality more fully. But when we get into some of the politics of what's the right way to practice the work, I just think we should stay really open-minded and continually look at what do we need right now.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think your point about individuals need different things at different times mm-hmm. in their in their lives um, brings to mind one of the points that, uh, from the second paper, I believe, where you're talking about the, you know, Gurdjieff's um, man, one through seven um, a set of descriptions of states um, that people can experience. And you make, I, I think, a point that is not necessarily frequently foregrounded in the paper about this um, when you talk about this being process, it's about process, that is to say, someone who is who who may have achieved you know human or man number five um, awareness. Isn't necessarily at every moment during the day um residing in that. And that doesn't mean only uh slipping, as it were, backward, but also moving perceptively forward, perhaps, in that's in that sequence. So I'm wondering if you could say something more about, about um how you see that classification system, how it gets used, and how it most profitably can be employed in the work today. Yeah, well,
2: I I personally think we should learn from other traditions where we can. Um, My experience in Zen is that awakening as an actualized state is is kept alive in some lineages. So, and I think that's, you know, there's a whole non-dual movement now and it's sort of mixed in with also crazy people claiming that they're enlightened. Um, but there are, there are practitioners who genuinely um, are awakened, and Zen um, they talked about, and I saw people who learn to enter into states of unity beyond space and time in meditation in a way that's very palpable um, in the context of the retreat who gets stuck there and they're in a monastic situation where everything is very supportive of actualizing a state of concentration. And they develop that for, if you're developing that continuously for several years, you can develop that where you're in touch with the place where everything's okay. And, That's what I would call man number five in the Gurdjieff framework is that man number one, two, and three are sort of their centers are not aligned. And man number four is someone who's coming into alignment, coming into balance. And if that becomes stable enough, there are these expansive states of consciousness that are correlated with that. And there's definitely... There seems to be a threshold or a jumping off point um, for most people. Some people kind of slide into unity very gradually. And some people have a sudden experience of it. And um, one of the Zen priests that I knew would himself say he was stuck in unity. He couldn't get out of it. Like he couldn't, it was just too easy for him to go into direct experience beyond a sense of a psychological self. So that can be stabilized and you can, that can become your ordinary way of being such that you have a hard time functioning. And there are people that get passed around in the mental health industry who are in some version of that. And we don't have as a culture, we don't have a knowledge of those States. And some people just that happens not through any form of spiritual practice. And so there's a process of integrating that, at least in Zen, where they intentionally give you all the support to get there. But then they start saying, hey, you need to take up that drum practice again, you know, or you need to go find a relationship now. Or they start bringing in things of how are you going to express that state you can produce on the cushion in some actual activity. And That's what I think of as, well, just to outline this for anyone who's listening, Gurdjieff basically said that man number one, two, three, become man number four on the way to man number five. And so I correlate man number five with an actual experience of the absolute. Man number six is sort of a transition to man number seven, who someone has integrated all of the faculties that they've opened up from man number five. So I sort of see that arc he's describing as being the same as what in Zen is described as going from the relative to the absolute to the relative again. With all yeah. of that enlightenment kind of coming back as part of, you know, ordinary mind is enlightened mind. The
0: oxerting the, the picture. Yeah. In the yeah. Like re- returning to the market with helping hands. Right.
2: Yeah. And so I I think that's a really... I think that those do, I think that's a real correlation there. Um, that's at least what I suggest in the paper. Mm-hmm. But what I think is particularly fascinating about and useful about the Gurdjieff work that Buddhists would be interested in is that my experience is that there, these are practices in which there's an active functioning mind. The mind is not calmed. It's being actively used. The body is not still it's actively moving. But you produce states of unity and being while being active hmm. in various So this is that as this arises in your experience, it's never separate from your experience.
0: So the integration is sort of a built-in. It's sort of, of baked into yeah.
2: it. But yeah. in a, the 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 downside is that you can kind of fail to see that or maybe ever experience that or fail to work intensively enough with the practices. For that to become a significant enough yes. state for you. But I think there's something that the Gurdjieff work is bringing to the table even though we may not be as enlightened as some Buddhists. There's something in our <laughs> tradition. There's something in our tradition. Speak which for is,
1: yourself, dude.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that nobody knows about yet, Honestly, that other traditions would benefit from and vice versa. So that's I look at it as a very integrative. I think Gurdjieff synthesized tons of different things, and we would be crazy not to synthesize the world's traditions and what they have to offer in the way that we're approaching spiritual practice today.
0: Well, that's, what, this is a perfect. Uh, yeah, uh, so spot we've there. run out of time. Unfortunately, there's no place for the uh, That's what hard. happens with
1: synthesis, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but uh, no, but I appreciate it. that's a, that's a great uh, response to the the question I was posing. Yes. And, yes. Uh, also, a great coda for the conversation we're having about what the conversation between traditions really offers, and you know that's part of why we do this show is that we're trying to be in conversation between sometimes very disparate traditions because for the very reason that you're describing
1: so i am really looking forward to our next conversation with you to follow this really interesting exciting work that you're up to um mazel tov May, may it may it blossom what are we going to
2: talk
0: about next time? <laughs> come, come. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Hold, the
1: question. <laughs> Hold the question. Hold the question, friend. Uh, but uh, I, will, I just
0: mentioned very briefly in closing that the uh, paper, the Unity and Multiplicity and All and Everything, that's being pre- presented in the, the 2021 All and Everything conference?
2: Yeah, in May I'll be presenting. Okay, okay
0: great. paper a, virtual, okay. conference,
2: so, a um, virtual
1: conference so so yeah. if people want to uh, access that um, they should contact you is that is, would that be correct? Yeah,
2: I don't I don't have a treverstuart.com or anything like that so um, you know maybe just my email can be linked to Yeah, we can put that or in or and I'll, like I'll put it that. in a sure. form that
0: doesn't uh, uh I'll let robots uh, misuse it. Right. Well, <laughs> well, well hey,
2: thanks for the thanks for the conversation I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's been fabulous.
1: Really appreciate it.
0: You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre recorded conversation with Trevor Stewart, practitioner and writer in the Fourth Way Tradition. Trevor Stewart has experience in both Zen Buddhist monastic and Gurdjieff work by a farm and try to fix it up traditions. A long time Beelzebub's Tales practitioner, he leads private online study groups. He presents regularly at the annual International All and Everything Conference, has written for Parabola Magazine, and is a returning guest on the Mystical Positivist Podcast. In daily life, he runs a design and build firm in Portland, Oregon. Next week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Professor Kate Crosby, author of Esoteric Theravada, the Story of the Forgotten Meditation Tradition of Southeast Asia, Theravada Buddhism often understood as the school that most carefully preserved the practices taught by the Buddha, has undergone tremendous change over time. Prior to Western colonialism in Asia, which brought Western and modernist intellectual concerns, such as the separation of science and religion, to bear on Buddhism, there existed a tradition of embodied esoteric and culturally regional Theravada meditation practices. This once-dominant traditional meditation system, known as Vipassana, Kamatana, is related to, yet remarkably distinct from, Vipassana and other Buddhist and secular mindfulness practices that would become the hallmark of Theravada Buddhism in the 20th century. Drawing on a quarter-century of research, scholar Kate Crosby offers the first holistic discussion of Vipassana. Kamatana, illustrating the historical events and cultural processes by which the practice has been marginalized in the modern era. Kate Crosby is Professor of Buddhist Studies at King's College London. Her work focuses on Sanskrit, Pali, and Pali vernacular literature, and on Theravada practice in the pre-modern and modern periods. Her other publications include Theravada Buddhism, Continuity, Diversity, Identity, and the Bodhi Bodhicaryavatara. Join us for that show on Saturday, May 8th at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com, and join us again next Saturday.